Welcome to me and my team and the news on this last week of February 2021. I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And this is the podcast you've been waiting for, our very second episode. Yes, we're very excited. A big week in the news with the president's tax returns being subject to prosecutors with the passing of Rush Limbaugh and the ongoing controversies around the Texas ice storm. But before we talk about any of that, I'd actually like to talk about college. You see, uh, Benjamin is a freshman and already is having to make some decisions about college, which is very different than when I was his age. One of the great benefits is that his high school and uh, area college partnered uh, to offer college classes he can take essentially starting his sophomore year next year that will count both for college and for high school. Mm -hmm. So he can do the same amount of classes as any other high schooler, but could almost be done, or in some cases could have an associate's degree by the time he finishes high school. The downside, every grade counts as his college GPA. So if a class he takes his sophomore year in high school will count just as much for his GPA as when he takes his senior year in college. Mm. The uh, counselor suggests that he be really sure about what he wants to do in college because if he takes a class like engineering, say, and then decides he doesn't want to be an engineer, she feels it might be a wasted class. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But first, Ben, here you are, 14, in your freshman year, and already, yeah, you got to think about college stuff? What? I know. I mean, it seems pretty far away and it is and I don't really know what I want to major in or anything or where I even want to go to college and the fact I just really think that it's stupid that these classes count as part of your college GPA while you're in high school that's like me as a fifth or sixth grader taking a class and having that count as part of my high school GPA there is something to that. And they do talk about the counselors that be sure the student is emotionally and mentally prepared as well as academically for these classes. On the flip side, cutting two years off a traditional college off could save us um, oh, eighty dollars to $100,000. So there's a lot of incentive there, right, with college rates as they are these days. Yeah. But I did realize something, Ben, and I haven't told you this. But uh, a little bit ago I was thinking about this. And when your counselor said, well, if you take a class just because it sounds interesting and then it ends up not being part of your major, then it's a wasted class. What I realize is, no, actually, knowledge is never wasted. If something is interesting and you have the opportunity to learn about it, then the worst thing that happens is it doesn't count towards your final four-year credits. Well, it's not a waste. It's still a great class that you enjoyed and learned, right? Yeah, and I mean, like, I could just probably get a few of the college, like, gen ed classes out of the way because everyone has to take those no matter what major you're in. I don't think I'll be able to do math and most of science because I just haven't learned those yet. But things like English and social studies, I think, could be fine. And, I mean, I'm not going to dive right in in my sophomore year to taking, like, college physics. <laughs> I, I, I right. haven't even learned high school physics yet. 
Well, that's right. It's an excellent point. And, and one of the challenges with, with geometry, which you're currently studying virtually, not having somebody teach it to you, but learning it all from the computer, is a difficult way to learn. Yeah. Learn well. And another thing with these classes is you're allowed to do them online, but I really don't want to do that because, A, they're college classes, so they're going to be even harder than normal, and B, they count towards my college GPA, so they're a big deal, and I want to make sure I'm having, like, an actual teacher teaching me so I don't fail. <laughs> yeah. So it was different for me when I was a freshman in high school. When I thought about college, I thought, thank goodness I have three more years before I have to figure that out. Then I went to college and said, thank goodness I have four years to figure out what to do with my life. Then I went to grad school and said, thank goodness I have another two years to figure out what to do with my life. <laughs> Eventually, I figured it out and ended up with a wonderful career in journalism. But uh, it's it seems today that kids just have so much more information and are more motivated to figure out what matters to them in life than yeah. back when I was young. And, I mean, I don't really think it's right that you have to, like, pick your college major as a freshman. Because, you know, I don't really think anybody would say, Yeah, I lived up to the dreams I had when I was 14. <laughs> I definitely stayed on that path. That's right. That explains my entire Major League Baseball career. <laughs> would have been easier had I made my high school baseball team, but we won't talk about that. Uh, but it is something that's different, too. You know, when I was first starting in college, I had friends at, at different colleges, and it wasn't a big deal to change major. It, meant, it might mean, you know, you take a few extra classes, but the per credit hour cost was so much lower then. And one of the things in the news that happened that changed that and the unintended consequences was a lot more federal money for loans was made available. And because there was more money for loans, colleges began charging more and collecting more money from the federal government in those loans, which students had to repay. So it was a great benefit for colleges. It seemed like a good benefit for students, but what it really led to was just higher and higher and higher college prices to the point where college is barely affordable these days, it feels. Um, and why some colleges, including my alma mater, St. John's College, actually cut tuition significantly to combat that. But as we talk about that in the news recently, there's also been talk about how college enrollment was certainly down this year. So another bonus is that people who put off college for a year because of the pandemic may or may not start next year. More, more students may take another year off. That could throw competitiveness at colleges and the number of staff and the revenue for colleges way off, not to mention what might happen to those students when they do enter the workforce. But you don't have to worry about any of that, Ben, because you're just a high school freshman. Yeah, but it seems like I almost have to because, like, everything the high school teachers say is like, if you don't pay attention here, you're going to fail college. And then they're, like, super strict and being like, hey, uh, your college teachers won't take this kind of slack, and college <laughs> teachers are actually like, hey, what's up, dude? My name's Matt. My wife made us some brownies. You want some? I did have a college uh, instructor whose husband made us brownies actually once. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, there might be some truth to that. I think the other big thing when they talk about maturity for college is that 
when you go to college because you know you want to be there and you know what you want to do, you are more invested in what you're doing. I did see too many people who just went from high school to college and treated college just like they treated high school. It's classes to get through instead of an opportunity to really use people who were teaching them uh, and some of the smartest people there were because after college, you don't get that luxury of somebody who's committed to just giving you knowledge. It's, it's... Yeah, and I guess back then, college was, you know, affordable for the average person. And you could afford to go for like one year, try to figure it out, and then drop out. And I mean, might have been a few thousand dollars, but it was nothing that you couldn't come back from. Now, one year of college is like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. So if you go for one year, you pretty much have to go for f four years and just see it through. Otherwise, you just wasted a whole chunk of money. And that might be one of the upsides of college being so expensive, is, is that it literally forces you, in a way, to kind of keep on your major. Otherwise, you know, you're just throwing money away. As long as you don't change your mind. And, and you've decided, of course, you're going to be a uh, lawyer, doctor. Which, which one of those? Uh, We've got time to figure that out. So um, among your high school studies this week, when you haven't been waking up at noon to do your classes, uh, what, uh, what have you been seeing in the news? Uh, well, apparently Obama and Bruce Springsteen are going to do a podcast together. I did not know that. I did not see that. Yeah. I didn't know they were friends. Well, that seems very interesting. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has been a supporter, was a supporter of President Obama's. Uh, has his own quite good autobiography, uh, if you haven't read it. If you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, you probably have. But even if you haven't, I think you'll find it interesting. Did they have a focus for it? Are they going to talk music? Or are they just whatever? I think they're just going to talk about whatever. Yeah. Seems like anybody can have a podcast these days. Hey! <laughs> That's where the drums would come in, if we could afford drums. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's cool. What else is going on in the news? Um, well, I saw the whole Trump tax debacle. Yes. So, interesting, it took the Supreme Court so long to decide. They wanted to wait till he was out of office. If you're not familiar with the story, the uh, Supreme Court has ruled that the President Trump's tax returns and financial information can be turned over to New York prosecutors who've been seeking it in a long, ongoing probe into his taxes and other financial dealings. Um, now, Ben, you said something earlier about why are they bothering with the jury, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to try Trump by jury, I mean, there are 12 jurors, and what are the odds that all 12 of them hate Trump? I mean, there's a very likely chance that at least one of them is going to be a Trump supporter who will refuse to convict him no matter the evidence. And that's why it's probably just a big waste of time, but hey, could be fun. <laughs> well, I don't know about fun. I'm sure some people would take joy just in seeing the former president on trial, but I have found, and I've talked to some prosecutors in cases like this, especially complex, this would certainly be a complex and long case, the general consensus is that most of the time, jurors who are there for the trial, who stick through the whole time, really do take their duties seriously and do evaluate all the evidence 
and try to come to honest conclusions. That doesn't always happen. And who's to say in this case exactly what happened? Because as you point out, we've never seen a case where someone with fans like President Trump has might very well be on a jury. Of course, that's putting the cart before the horse if we get there. And if he was uh, one juror held out or there was no decision, then it would not actually be an acquittal. Then we would have a hung jury and it would be up to prosecutors to decide whether to go to trial again if we got there. But the current state is a grand jury. Yeah, which is kind of just like a big jury that decides whether or not to charge him with anything. That's right. That's right. And I've heard some confusion around this topic. But the grand jury is before anyone is charged, before we go to trial. They hear evidence only from the prosecutors. No defense attorney is present. And if a majority of the grand jury thinks that there's enough evidence to go to trial, then they would choose to indict on those charges. If a majority feels there is not enough evidence to go to trial, then they would decline to indict, and it would all be over there. But if the grand jury decides there's enough evidence to indict, the prosecutors go forward, we could sometime, you know, any. I would assume it would be several months at least of information detailing. We, we could see a former president indicted on financial charges. Or maybe they'll find no wrongdoing mm-hmm. and he won't be indicted on anything. Yeah, that could very well happen. I mean, Trump's never exactly been very forthcoming about his taxes and his finances. And he's never really been good at it. He's declared <laughs> bankruptcy like... How many times? Six? I'm not sure, but bankruptcy court has, has been his friend. <laughs> and and yet, you know, he'll just say, this is a legal system, he's used a legal system, he's done everything legally, and he's lived a very good life uh, and has a lot of money to spend on things like golf courses and living at Mar-a-Lago. So if his argument is simply, that's what the law allows, that's what I did, legally, who's to say what he did was wrong? Yeah, I guess that could happen, but kind of switching topics here, let's move on to <laughs> the Texas winter yes. storm. boy, such a horrible event. Yeah. What have you seen in the news about that? Well, millions of Texans were without heat or water, and Ted Cruz decides this is a great time to take a family trip to Cancun, Mexico. Which is like... That seems logical, but, uh, you know. Yeah. Who wouldn't rather be on the beach than be in the freezing cold with no electricity? Problem is, he's supposed to be, like, leading people through a crisis. Uh, he's an elected official. And when stuff gets bad and the elected official skips town, that's not really a good sign. You mean we want our elected officials to do things? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure... Somewhere in the Constitution, it probably says that they're allowed to do something. So, Ted Cruz, his brief trip to Cancun and flying standby to come back the next day amid criticism and then have photographs of himself giving out water, uh, has gotten a lot of headlines, but it's been a much bigger story. What else have you seen about the disaster in Texas? Well... 
A large part of it is because the power grid isn't really ready for winter yes. anything. And so they haven't winterized any of the pipes that pump electricity to homes. And the biggest perpetrator of this failure are the coal and natural ga gas plants, but also the wind turbines just freezing because they're not prepared for 20 degree temperatures. And they can't get any electricity from the other parts of the American power grid because... They're their own power grid. They're their own power grid. And a highly privatized power grid. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's all private. Mm -hmm. And because it's all private, the companies decided, wait, if we winterize stuff, that'll cost us money. Eh, it'll never be 20 degrees in Texas. Let's just go make some money instead. And, you know, it's one thing to blame the privatization in Texas, but it's actually been something not uncommon for utility companies over the years in various states who have monopolies on utilities to choose not to invest in infrastructure because they know when a disaster happens and the power needs to come back on, they can usually count on a government to give them more money to fix the disaster than they would have spent on infrastructure. But since it's the government's money and not the company's money, it works out better for them. Yeah, so they end up making money instead of losing it when a disaster happens because of the government relief fund that mm -hmm. comes to them, which doesn't exactly sound very fair. And because all these power companies, they have a monopoly over the area, uh, that's not very free market of them. Yes. Uh, so how come there haven't been a bunch of antitrust suits against oh. these big power companies, right? Well, there's good reasons for that with utilities because you can't have five different companies running electric lines through a town, for example. Just like you couldn't have, uh, in the old days of landline phones, you didn't want eight different phone companies running lines all over the place uh, or eight different cable companies running cable lines to houses because that was unworkable. So the choice was to give utilities local or regional monopolies. And uh, yeah, I think we do see some challenges that come from monopolies in that way. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And another part of the Can Texas power failure is the elected officials don't really want to do much. I mean, the mayor of Colorado City, which is actually in Texas, had to resign after saying, it's not the government's job to help you through a crisis. You guys are on your own. Like... He literally said that pretty much word for word, which... Rugged individualism. But uh, it is the government's <laughs> job to help you through a crisis, especially the local government's one. That's why you pay your taxes, I suppose. Yep. Or why you would if you weren't 14. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still, you know, on that debate and the idea of privatization, the other big story that came out of that was the total market escalation of natural gas and electricity for those who had power. And we've seen stories of people who chose to be in the uh, marketplace where power prices could fluctuate. And when they spiked, there were people who for two days of electricity were paying fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars because they had gone onto the complete free market. Now, 
It's true, they signed up for those things, right? Yeah. That is capitalism working in some sense, right? Well, it's kind of having it working because, you know, you shouldn't be paying thousands of dollars to have the lights on. I mean, sure, it might be a free market, but if no one can afford it, then it's not really a great system. I mean, the power companies are still charging people money for the electricity they didn't use because their electricity was down. Well, no, I don't think that's right. Well, the water... Well, when people's pipes froze, mm -hmm. at least for water, um, the water companies were still gushing water in, although it wasn't going anywhere. Okay, water, the, sure. Because the pipes were freezing, and so now all these people are having water bills that, you know, they didn't get to use any of that water. It's just sitting frozen in pipes. Yes. I can see that. And, like, uh, there's, I don't have a good answer for what they would do with that because it's not the water company's fault that your house's pipes froze. And it's not the house person. It's not the homeowner's fault that their pipes froze either. So it's kind of a tricky issue. Who pays? Yeah, that seems like the kind of thing that maybe there's some disaster relief would be uh, appropriate in that case. And it's nobody's fault. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps homeowner's insurance in some cases. But maybe not. We'll talk about insurance another day and whether something is an act of God or not in terms of it being covered in your insurance policy. We'll have to get an expert on for that because I'm not one, certainly. <laughs> I am. Before we move on from Texas, I am curious, too, uh, in the media coverage you've seen, you know, has anything stood out to you in what the media or which media has chosen to cover which stories? Or have you noticed? Mm -hmm. I haven't really noticed. It's just... All of them are generally running the same story of millions without mm -hmm. water in Texas. Um, there are a few, like Fox News, for example, where the governor of Texas went on and just completely bashed the Green New Deal mm -hmm. because all their wind turbines froze. And had we had no more wind turbines, no one wouldn't have had power. But... The coal plants also froze. Everything froze. Right. It's not the wind turbines' fault. Amazing that they could find a way to criticize a New York congressional Republican who's been in office for two or four years who has nothing to do with the actual power outage. But I guess that's politics. Find someone to blame who's not you, right? Yeah, and, you know, because it's an energy crisis and a bunch of conservatives are at fault... You know, well, who are they going to blame? AOC. I don't think we can say that a bunch of conservatives are at fault. Well, I, don't know the, I don't know the political persuasion of every single person who might be to blame in this scenario. Yeah, I guess you're right, but the prominent conservatives in Texas, like the governor, have been bashing AOC for some reason. Mm -hmm. It seems like whenever anything goes wrong, it's AOC's fault. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this in other contexts, not just with her, but have you seen uh, Democrats or other political folks pick out somebody to be the person they blame for everything or try to divert attention to? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty common and often easy-to-use tactic. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, why should I take the blame when I can just pin it on that guy? If we know somebody's unpopular with our constituency, used to be, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein were targets of the right. Um, there have been a number of targets from the left. You know, George W. Bush was not particularly liked among Democrats, for example. <laughs> this most recent president obviously took all the oxygen in the room for uh, those who didn't, who wanted to cast blame on an individual. I point it out because it is a common technique for not just politicians, but for anyone to deflect attention from themselves to talk instead about somebody who they can agree with their supporters on is a problem, so to speak, even if that person is eight states away and has nothing to do with anything happening where you are. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't really help because with the whole, you know, mass media thing and you can set up an interview, it seems like in 10 minutes, if you're a prominent politician, it's really easy now to get your message out there mm-hmm. and immediately respond to any kind of criticism at any time. But it's also really easy for anyone to critique someone at any time because it's all instantaneous. I see. Yes, I think that's an excellent observation. Uh, all right, let's, let's talk about some of the other news. One of the big stories last week was the passing of Rush Limbaugh. I uh, know you obviously didn't know him well, listened to him much. <laughs> I can I say my own experience did. was that I remember seeing him on TV when I was in high school and thinking, boy, this guy's entertaining, and he's saying things that nobody else is saying. I think I like this. Um, and so I would listen to the show some back then and watch, and, and it took me a while to figure out the particular styles of uh, convincing people and the ways that he would do it. And so I studied it a little bit. You know, one of the things I want to talk about is that he certainly did something that was incredibly hard, which was take radio, largely AM radio, and spend three or four hours talking, not having a lot of guests, which was a big change, but talking and keeping people listening through his entire show for 20 plus years. That is unheard of um, and was never done before. But one of the things that allowed that that isn't talked about as much. There was an excellent article from an organization called Pointer, uh, for those who want to go look it up, about how the uh, fair time rules changed the year before. It used to be equal time. If you had a broadcast show and you talked about one political party or, or one politician or one side of an issue, you were supposed to talk about the other side for a similar amount of time. Uh, that rule was abolished, and the next year, Rush Limbaugh was one of the first people to say, oh, well, this changes how we do things, and began to do an entirely different kind of radio show. Yeah, I mean, it's called Completely One-Sided Information <laughs> with Rush Limbaugh. That would uh, not be inaccurate. I mean, it was pretty one-sided, and would mix a lot of true things in, and things you should be outraged about, with some things that weren't quite true, um, and to generate more outrage, which generated ratings. And in some sense, it's almost like he figured out the Facebook formula before Facebook did. Yep. But it's also interesting to see the reactions from people because, you know, there certainly are a lot of people who considered him an enemy, not good for the country, and certainly a lot of people who really enjoyed listening to him every day and felt like he was the only one 
who was standing up for what they believed in. And how do we reconcile those different perspectives on someone who is so well known? Well, I think you have to look at it from both sides. I mean, on one side, he was very well liked. But then again, he wasn't always the greatest at saying things that were necessarily unbiased or true, even. I mean, the way he got people to listen is he'd say things that nobody else would. I mean, that was kind of his shtick. Mm -hmm. And the reason nobody else would say those things is because what he, is because they're not true. So, if you can go on the air and stir up a bunch of controversy that people want to listen to something controversial, something new, something different. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big way he generated ratings is by saying the most inflammatory stuff possible that a percentage of people would completely 100% agree with. Because when you're listening to someone and you're listening and he and you're just agreeing with everything they say, you're going to want to keep listening to them versus someone that you're not agreeing with everything they say, right? Makes some sense. It, it is also, his rise coincided with what they used to call shock jocks, morning DJs who would say things no one else would say to get your attention and make you listen, um, who could be entertaining. Howard Stern is the most common example of that no you're not old enough to listen to howard stern in case you're wondering who is howard stern no you know a shock jock we'll just say that uh <laughs> who made a very funny movie years ago but you're also not old enough for that oh but it also spoke to the changing strategies for news radio this was something that prior to this you know most talk radio stations were focused on getting the biggest audience possible. And why would you have a host who you know half the audience will not listen to? You're immediately ruling out half your potential listeners, right? Yes, but at the same time, while you're ruling out half, I mean, Rush Limbo always had a pretty dedicated following, almost like a cult. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Well, he had a pretty dedicated fan base versus something like, say, just plain old NPR. I mean, yeah, you'll listen to it once in a while, but you're not gonna. <laughs> no. You're not gonna like. Let's not bash NPR. <laughs> we're not bashing NPR. I'm just saying nobody really runs straight to the radio to catch the latest episode of All Things Considered. Uh, I, right? You know, they're I mean, the So yes, but the passion among the. Uh, ditto heads, as they call themselves, um, which was a, a, a neat way of taking a radio problem of having people who would come on and, and want to say, hey, I really like you, radio host, you're awesome. Just have them say ditto, and then you can move on to whatever they were talking about. Um, they became ditto heads from, for Rush Limbaugh. But I'll say this, if you had a radio station and you were only getting, let's say, 5% of the audience, right? your approach shouldn't really be to try to get 100% of the audience because you're just not going to get there. But if I said to you, I have somebody who can get you 25% of the audience guaranteed and you're getting 5%, you're going to say, yeah, I'll take that. I don't care about that other 50% because I'm never going to get them anyway. Yeah, that's a big part of his whole game plan was mm -hmm. he never wanted to capture the attention of people who disagreed with him. He had his... 
he said what he wanted to say, and he either loved it or hated it. Mm -hmm. And that's how he would generate money. Yes. And he generated quite a bit of it for a lot of people. I'll say, for me, you know, the biggest disappointment for hosts like Rush Limbaugh were when it was clear that he wasn't even bothering to be consistent with himself and what he believed. It's one thing to just have somebody saying things you don't believe in uh, or you don't think maybe are true, but they believe them, that's fine. But even if you just go back, for example, to the 2016 presidential election, um, you know, he talked at length about how Donald Trump was a bad candidate for the Republican Party, hmm. how it should have been. And I really couldn't tell you whether it was Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or John Kasich or who it was he thought was a better candidate for the Republican Party. But he very much would talk about it should not be Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not good for America. When Donald Trump became the nominee, he completely changed his tone and began to say all things wonderful about Donald Trump. Isn't that what every Republican did? That's I mean, not what every Republican did, but there are many. Ahem, Ted Cruz, <laughs> and Sean Hannity was another. And that to me is disappointing when someone says, when it just very plainly puts it out there, I'm coming from an agenda, I'm not going to be truthful to the truth, I'm just going to be truthful to whatever my agenda of the moment is. Yeah, and I mean, he's a political talk show, and so he speaks and acts in many ways like a politician, you know. They just do a whole 180 on their complete ide ideology mm -hmm. when it agrees with them. Yes, that's right. Uh, and that is, for someone who's been in the media a long time in particular, the number one thing I search for is just honesty and truth. And to me, I want a lot of viewpoints. I want to hear perspectives from the most right-wing Republicans to the most left-wing Democrats, the Green Party, the Libertarians, and everybody in between. But I want it to be intellectually honest. I want them to be seeking the truth not pushing a point, which I think we see in media, most people generally would prefer that. But it is an interesting business case. And it is something I think is a good lesson for media business in general, because we see this in television, for example. If you have a dominant local TV station in your market, the best way to try to take on that TV station might not be, if you're a competitor, to try to get the whole market to watch you. You might look at that dominant TV station and say, okay, they're number one, but among men, 25 to 39, they're a little bit weak. So we're going to put all our efforts into going after men, 25 to 39, and see if we can become number one with that demographic and then advertise around that and then build from that. So stations will, especially if they are not the number one station, the number two, the number three, they have a small audience. They will take more chances and focus more on an individual demographic to try to win something. Sort of a guerrilla welfare of taking the hill, so to speak, if you're a Sun Tzu fan. Um, and it is a fascinating approach that sometimes pays off, but also sometimes really creates unusual news, whether it be radio, TV, even in newspapers and digital publishing, too. And I mean, I think a lot of news stations, especially those that are just trying to get started or aren't that mm -hmm. big will always take the approach of if I go up there and I try to do the same thing that the number one guy's doing, I mean, who's going to listen to me? The number one guy can just do it better with more recognition, so I have to fill a certain niche that they aren't filling. Because when you have unbiased news, that means you're 
you know, more generalistic. Mm -hmm. You appeal to a much broader swath of people, but maybe not as intensely. Mm -hmm. You know, sure, you might get some males 25 to 39, but you're not getting all of them. You know, I'm pretty sure you just took what I said and said it better. Yep. Good job. (laughs) Well, that'll be a good way to begin to wrap up. And I do want to point out that, like many podcasts, we are using Post by Futuri to create and publish and optimize this episode. Learn why some of the top brands use Post at futurimedia.com. Thank you for listening to our second episode of Me and My Team and the News. And please send us feedback, follow us on Twitter, find us wherever you can find us, leave comments on Spotify or Apple or Google or the many places that we either are or soon will be. We plan to be So that's it for week two. I'm Ben, he's Tim, and this is me, my team, and the news. <laughs>